Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to oh, I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Well, here we are, Radical Australia, once again. And once again, we've got possibly an interesting guest. My name is Joseph Toscano. Now, young Vivian Marlowe has stepped into the void. Good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Joe. It's an honour to be here panelling for you today. An honour to be panelling for me. It is. Radical oh, Australia. Radical Australia. I remember when I interviewed you in the early days. You were just a young thing. You came in and you, and now you're a 3CR staple, as they say. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see you again, Vivian. Yep. Thanks, Jane. And all the best. Now, our guest is Kay Howlaney. Have I got it right? You do. That's amazing. You know, the only, look, look, listeners, you know I've got terrible, terrible pronunciation because English is not my first language and, uh, it's interesting that uh, she had to write it out. Kay had to, Kay Halani had to write it out phonetically for me, otherwise I would have stuffed it up. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on this program. Ah, oh, look, it's, it's really a pleasure. great to be here. It's always a pleasure to have interesting people on the program. Why are you in Australia? Well, let me just start by thanking you for having me on the show and acknowledging being on Wurundjeri territory. And to let listeners know, my full name is J.K. Halani Kawanui. I'm a Kanakamali woman. That is, Kanakamali means Native Hawaiian. And I'm here in Narm, Melbourne, as an invited guest by the Indigenous Unit at RMIT uh, to give several public lectures, which I've just finished up, mm. and uh, also to be able to connect with traditional custodians of the land there and to meet colleagues and comrades and learn about what's going on with Indigenous studies and Indigenous activism here in this part of the world. Mm. So how long have you been in Australia? Well, I was up in Wollongong before mm-hmm. coming down here and mm-hmm. prior to that, Sydney. So it's been about three weeks and I've got a few more days. And this is your first first visit? It isn't, actually. I've been to the country. This is my seventh or eighth visit. Seventh or eighth visit. <laughs> when, was, when was the first year? Can the you first one was 1994. Uh, that's when you were a youngster. In Melbourne. Yeah. I was studying in Aotearoa, New Zealand in Maori uh, studies at the yeah. master's level at the time. And I came for an international Women's mm. Studies Conference and mm. the International Women's Book Fair yeah. in Melbourne in 1994. Right. You know, people usually ask, well, what do you think of the city? I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going to ask you, have you noticed any changes between 94 and 2019? <laughs> Most definitely. I was also here in 95 right after uh, that, and then there was a huge gap until 2017. Mm. So having been here in, nine, in, in Melbourne in particular, nine, in specifically 94, 95, and then not till 2017 and now 2019, just incredible differences in terms of I can even see it in the demographic, the explosive numbers of the population, and construction around the city. Mm. How about uh, culturally? How about uh, our uh, interaction with our Indigenous past? Well, just based on a few weeks here, it's hard to weigh in on that, but I do see the strength and resilience of Indigenous individuals and Indigenous peoples as collective polities here, mm-hmm. full force mm-hmm. in, a really way, in a way that's really seems fortifying and is also really instructive in terms of the sort of organizing going on, especially in the face of ongoing settler colonial violence, mm-hmm. learning while I'm here about the intensification of deaths in custody, the sort of federally driven native title process, Victoria State trying to broker a treaty. How could that not be a treaty of session? I mean, some of those really complicated mm-hmm. and problematic. Okay. Did, uh, did your guests take you around the corner at RMIT to show the Tanaminoe Mōbōhina monument? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, you must see that. That took a long, it was a long bit of struggle, which emanated from this studio. It was about 16 years. The first major monument to, uh, to Indigenous Australians 
massacres in mm. Australian mm. history, and that was 2016, and it took 14 years of interaction. Is that right? So people don't. I don't think people understand the significance of the Tanaminui Amorbo Hinamonu. It's worthwhile having while you're here. Yes, it's worthwhile having a look at it. It's. Uh, I'll it, definitely it was, do that. It, it was I'm a great also struggle. staying very close to there, so I can also find it on my own. Yeah, it's just across the road from the opening to the old Melbourne Jail. Thank now let's get on to the real interview. All right. We're here to humiliate you and all those oh, things. Oh, goody. Yeah, we like doing those type of things. Now, I only asked two questions during the real interview. The first question, just to orientate listeners, what year were you born? 1968. 68, so that you're a youngster. And the second question... Thanks. Well, compared to me, you're a youngster. Is she a youngster compared to you, Vivian? 68? No. No. What, same vintage? I'm older. A little bit. A little bit. Oh, good. And the second question is, what's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth? Hmm. That's the great thing about live radio. We don't have much time <laughs> for thinking. Don't catch me off guard or anything. Well, no, no, no. I wouldn't catch you off Just guard. Just ask me those questions that I think about every day and I have like a well, pre-formulated well, answer. Well, this is a conversation. It's not an interview. I'm not here to prove anything. I just want to learn about <laughs> you. What can you remember? The first thing you think you can remember. Maybe manufactured, maybe real. Well, when you ask the question, I'll tell you what the first thing that came to mind was me running around chasing my dog named Shay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know how old I would have been at that time, but that's the first memory that came to me. The dog was named Shay. Shay. Shay, not Shay. 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 Right. And where was that? That was in Southern California, where I was born and raised. Right. And uh, are your parents still alive? Yes, both of them are, actually. Are they still in Southern California? My mother is. Uh-huh. My father is not. He's moved further away from Hawaii, where he's from, and that's uh-huh. how I get my Kanakamali ancestry. Right. So, why did they move? Or was your mother always from Southern California? No, actually, my mom is a white American of German and Irish background, mm-hmm. uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and moved to California for high school and sort of stayed mm-hmm. in California for these last several decades. She's in her se- mid-70s now, and right. she's been there since high school. And Dad? My dad left the island of Kauai, where my closest kin reside on that side, uh, at 17 to join the Army. And uh, met my mom in Southern California because she was roommates with one of his cousins. Right. And uh, the rest was history. The rest is history, and you're here yeah. because of that association. <laughs> yeah. No, but he lives in Florida now with his third wife. With his third <laughs> wife? He's doing well. He's doing very well. We it, usually meet up in in Hawaii, or he comes to uh, visit me in you, Connecticut, where I live and you work. You think that's because of his army background he's gone to a third wife? Or? No. No, all right, we won't go into that. So where did you um, go to school? In terms of the whole shebang? No, no, just primary school. You know, the early stages. Primary school? Who cares about that? I do, because uh, the whole point of the program is to show that uh, activists and radicals come from all different backgrounds. Oh, all right. This is interesting. I, uh, let's see, from second grade on, I moved from Los Angeles to uh, Orange County before it was known as the OC. And went to Corona Del Mar Elementary, which no longer exists any. Right. And uh, then Lincoln Middle School and then Corona Del Mar High School. Yeah, but when you were in primary school, did you, did, did, um, did you think you were different to other kids? Oh, yeah, I knew I was different. How did you know you were different? Because of my surname, Kawanui. Mm. People mm. made fun of it, and I was around a lot of uh, wealthy white kids, mm. and I knew I was mixed race, and we were not wealthy. Mm. Lived in rentals growing up. Mm. And also, my dad comes from a working poor family. And so, in comparison to my cousins on Kauai, I was seen as sort of the light-skinned, richer cousin, but in relation to where I actually lived, it was quite the opposite. Right, right. So, there was that difference, Mm. which obviously had some impact on your upbringing and development Mm. as a human being. Mm. Yeah, well, also the stereotypes about Hawaii as a paradise and place of vacation. So, Mm. when kids would find out I was, like, to try and figure out the name and learned I was Hawaiian... They tell me about their, you know, their second homes right. there, <laughs> and think how lucky it was. And I would think you don't want to, you don't want to know where I'm going. <laughs> it's quite different. <laughs> and did you high school, same area, or did you? Yeah, move? same area. And what was the high school? Cornell Mar. Same name as the same elementary. Name. It's just right. the elementary doesn't exist and anymore. And these are public schools. They're state, state-funded oh, yeah. schools. Oh, you yeah. went to, right? Yeah. So, because your dad was in the military, it didn't really help him much in terms of uh, assisting with your education and 
Oh, I should make it clear he wasn't career military. He did an army stint for three years, no, and it was, was a way for him uh, to like survive. And yeah. basically, it was a, it was a ticket out of Hawaii. Yeah. So, what type he, of work was he doing there? When my mom met him, he was a cash register repairman. Mm-hmm. And then, for most of my life growing up, he was a car mechanic. Right. And then, by the time I left for college, when I put myself through school, uh, he had become self-employed as a plumber. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll just say self-employed because I'll say he had his own plumbing business, but that I don't mean he, that he hired other people to work for him. He did basically he owned a van and went yeah, around yeah, and did yeah. his own jobs because yeah, it was easier yeah. for him to do it alone. Yeah, right. and, and, and kind of mom, a loner. And your mum, did she do? Waitress. Waitress, Waitress right. And then later home care. So you couldn't say you came from a rich background? No, but they did. my mom did marry somebody who was a white-collar worker mm-hmm. who then was unemployed mm-hmm. uh, for health reasons. Right. Um, and then my dad married somebody in high management. So right. mixed class background, I right. have to say. So how old were you when your dad moved out? Moved out? Mm. What do you, oh, I'm sorry, what do you mean? You said he, you said your dad remarried. Did he remarried after you grew up or when you were a oh, child? My dad uh, remarried, I think I was about five or six. Five or six. But yeah. only lived an hour away from me. Right. So I've seen him. And then he moved to Hawaii. He tried to move back to Hawaii for a couple years. Mm. And it didn't really work out. It was really hard going in terms of employment, affordability. I mean, this mm. is how a lot of mm. Native Hawaiians end up leaving is getting outpriced. Right. And then he moved back to Southern California and, again, lived really close to... Even when I moved, he, mm. he had moved, too, but we were still only within an hour. So you always had interaction with your dad, although... Yeah, and I actually ended up moving in with my dad and his second wife and lived with them for, for right. several years. So we, you think, and he was with that person for 30 years. Right. So you think the... Um, did this, do you think had an impact on you growing up, on your personality, having to move from one house to another, uh, your, your background not actually being um, constant? Well, I was a teenager at the time. Right. and I so was, it didn't matter. I, well, I wouldn't say it didn't matter. Mm. I'd, I'd say what had way more of an impact on me is working from a young age. I've been working since right. I was 13. 13? Yeah. Why did you start working at 13? To pay for my clothes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what type of work were you doing? Oh, I was doing odd jobs. Odd jobs, And then right. by the time I was in community right. college and college, I cleaned houses for seven years. Right. So when you left high school, was the world your oyster, or did you have to work hard to get where you are now? I don't see those as or, right? One can have the world be their oyster and work really hard. I don't know what – I don't see it as a binary. Well, well, I see it as a binary. Some people, they leave high school and the world's there on a platter for them. Other people have to – carve out their name they have to put a lot of effort and energy or just get a good fork to get that oyster and do some work to <laughs> do some work to taste it yeah you got to get to it yeah but some people the oysters there the old silver spoon syndrome you said you came like the high school and the um yeah farm. no i lived actually i lived with my dad and his second wife while i went to community college i wasn't mm. university prepped in high school so, so what, what, what's, and a, what's a community college yeah it's a basically entry level for adults you don't have to really test in and you basically can get a two-year degree. Right. And so what I did was I went there for three years and did all the breadth requirements to transfer, and I transferred to University of California, Berkeley. In Berkeley. And then got my bachelor's there. Right. Bachelor in what? Women's studies. Women's studies. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, but to answer your question, I would want to say that I really did see leaving Orange County in particular and heading to the to the San Francisco Bay Area as an oyster, right. if you will, although it took a lot of work to do it. I mean, yeah. it took me six years to get a four-year degree. Yeah. But um, I w- really felt, even in high school, the political repression of the Reagan era. We used to call it living behind the orange curtain mm. as a play on the, the iron, iron curtain, curtain. Yeah. of Orange County. And I just knew things were different in Northern California. And that's, you know, really before there was heavy gentrification in the San Francisco Bay Area due to, like, the tech kind of developments of Silicon mm. Valley. And so I really wanted to be up there with all the radicals oh, and lefties. And that's actually where I cut my teeth on anarchist politics. Right. All right. That's at Berkeley. Mm. Well, where else? <laughs> where else in the USA would you cut your teeth on anarchist politics? But going back to Berkeley, what were the six years there like? I had the three years there. I did three, three. years prep in community college and then three to, years to get Berkeley. the requirements to be right. able to transfer. Sure. And then three more because I was working my way through school, so mm. it took a bit longer. Mm. Mm. 
It was incredible. Tell us about it. I had a fantastic experience there. I appreciated every bit of it, but I also, and I actually talked about this in one of my public lectures because it's related to a book project I'm working on right now. I was taught by really incredible women of color feminist theorists and was also there during an, during the time of the quincentenary of Columbus's landing in the New World. So by 1992, when I was graduating, there was just massive activism going on. I was also uh, living in a co- in two, I lived in actually three different cooperatives, uh, co-ops. And, and what did you live in a co-op because of because of uh, philosophical reasons or because of monetary reasons? Both. Both. Again, not there. It wasn't for me split at that point. Point right. Okay. And um, and I lived in one that was quite notorious. The first one called Barrington Hall, which I came to through a friend. Of a cousin of a friend well, of mine. You can't get away anarchist. with that. You can't get away with that. Why was it notorious? That's like you know the officiant. Well, you've thrown out some bait out at our listeners. They want to know biting. why it's notorious. You're biting. We're biting. Why is it notorious? Nibble, nibble. Um, well, there was a hu- it was a hub of activism. It was also just a hub of counterculture, and it had been around for decades and had a lot of uh, a lot of great punk bands had <laughs> played oh, there, right. and a lot of it's also a drug den. Um, All right, but so it's, it's but notorious it's not, for the normal reasons. It was, no, but also notorious <laughs> in the sense that it was shut down, and right. I actually got to live there right before it was shut down. You were shut down by the uh, Berkeley police in right. co- in cahoots with the cooperative association. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So, did you actually have any time for study? Oh yeah. You did. Yeah. You did make I'm very time. disciplined. When you have to work your way through school, you have to figure out how to manage your time. Right. And be okay. highly. Or- I'm a highly organized person to this now, day. Now, you used the A word before, anarchism. Um, so what was your first introduction to anarchism? It was actually before I moved to the Bay Area. Mm. I was... Um, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a bit embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you. I was stumping for the Dukakis campaign mm-hmm. in Orange County, going neighborhood to neighborhood, doing voter registration for the Democrat Party. Yep. Democrat Party, and um, I came back and I went to this friend's house, and her cousin, who I'd heard about for years, Ooh. Pete Bess, <laughs> who I just like instantly had a crush on, uh. um, basically just said, "What you know? What the hell are you doing?" And mm. I was with my friend Tim, and he mm. was talking about mm. electoral politics mm. and. I had been out in the hot sun. It was a summer time, and it was really hot. And we were going to neighborhoods where people had, like, pit bulls that were coming after us. And we yeah. were, like, you know, yeah. really trying to, like, we were really we were really sweating it, you know. Yeah. And my friend Tim got really defensive and irate. And I was really tuned in and listening, and not just because I was interested in the person. Yeah. But everything he said actually resonated for me, and I didn't feel defensive at all. It mm. really just sat, I sat with it. Mm. And then um, I... Had already been though to San Francisco after high school, like right after high school, I made my first kind of alone trip mm-hmm. with my best friend at the time, Amber right. Lynn, who I'm still close to. Right. Uh, you know, knew her through elementary, middle, and high school. We just saw each other uh, a couple months ago, and we did our first adult trip, and we went to San Francisco, and we stayed in the YMCA, or no, YWCA. Well, I'm sure you clarified that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a bit worried there for and, a minute, and um. There's an anarchist bookstore in the Haight Ashbury district, uh, and it's, it's still there. there. A long yeah, time. and I went in a there, and you know time. the whole wall of political pamphlets. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like you know people talk about going into like a bakery or a candy shop. This was that for me. Mm. I mean, the pamphlet titles just I have some of those that I bought. I still own I them. Right. You know, the ones that I bought or rather donated money for, yeah. and um, mm. I had those even before. So actually. Actually, yes, yeah, so I flipped it. So I actually had that experience before I met Pete and talked about the voting stuff. Mm. And then, um, but those are two kind of moments where things sort of started mm. to percolate for me. What did anarchism mean to you then? Then it was, I think about two foundational things that are still with me in terms of how I think about it, and that is um, challenging state authority. Challenging state authority and challenging capitalism mm-hmm. are the two main things. And I'd say I have a, you know, a more detailed way of thinking about that today than then. But those were the two things for me. So, so those pillars haven't changed, have they? No. No. All right. Getting back to you, um, what happens to somebody who's got a degree in Williams Women's Studies from Berkeley? What happens? You got your degree. 
I still had junk jobs after that. I'm like, I went to school for six years, and what did I end up doing? I ended up being a telephone operator for a catalog company selling mustard bath and body pillows. Whoa, body pillows. Yeah, body pillows. Uh, and I, I st- still didn't have a car, and I, I took a bus an hour each way. I worked 1 p.m. to 9 p.m., five days a week. But in the meantime, I had found out about the Fulbright Fellowship. The Fulbright Fellowship. Now, what is a Fulbright Fellowship, explain it to our listeners. Well, this will sound a little wild in relation to anarchist politics, but mm. I'm just going to let it all no. hang out on Radical Look, Australia. Radical Australia is not anarchist politics. Radical Australia is about radicalism. So well, there's, there's nothing right or wrong on Radical Australia. Well, the Fulbright is, you know, a federal fellowship mm. to go to another country and do research, and the country has to be one that the U.S. has good diplomatic relations with, and it's mm. federal money. Mm. And um, I had already graduated, and I went back to campus to visit friends in the Women's Center. And a friend that I knew who, had, uh, who was still in school was applying. Mm. She was working on something. I said, what are you doing? And she right. said, I'm applying for a fellowship. And I said, what do you mean? What is it? And she said, it's called the Fulbright. And I said, but what is it? And she goes, well, you get a monthly stipend to go study in another country. And I'm like, you get a stipend? You mean people actually give you money to go study and research? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I already know what I want to do. She goes, well, the, the application's due in a couple of weeks, and it takes mm. a really long time to do it. Mm. And you have to go through the school, and you've already graduated. And I looked, I, I looked into it. I called this before the web, and they said, you can apply at large even though you've graduated. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do without even thinking about it. I said, I want to go to Aotearoa, New Zealand. What? What? <clears throat> yeah. New Zealand? Yeah. I try, why? Well, because by then I had already been to Aotearoa and Te Vaiponumu for a conference in 1992. Mm. I graduated from university in 92, and I went to my first international conference and presented. Mm. What did you present? Uh, I presented on Hawaiian nationalism, indigenous Hawaiian nationalism, nationalism. and land rights. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about the Bay Area, and I'll come back to the Maori studies part in New Zealand and the Fulbright, is that I uh, was there. I mentioned the quincentenary of Columbus's uh, arrival, right? So there was just massive protests all over and a lot of related events. In 1993, by then I was already working with Hawaiian elders in the San Francisco Bay Area, doing solidarity work with California indigenous people whose land we were on, the Ohlone people. And um, I was really interested in solidarity politics. Like what did it mean to work with Native Hawaiians on someone else's land. And I, I was taught sort of the acknowledgement part as an undergraduate by a Native Hawaiian elder activist who came through and gave a talk at Berkeley. And I was really riled up, and everything he said re- resonated for me with what I knew about my family's experience on Kauai. And he said, you know, it's great that you want to support our people back home on our land struggle, but just remember where you are, and you have to support the people of this land. And also, we were dealing with a repatriation issue of human, Hawaiian human remains at the Berkeley Museum. Mm-hmm. And the Ohlone tribal chair, the Moekma Ohlone tribal chair, Rosemary Camber, really helped in the Hawaiian case. So there was this incredible um, rapport, and I was really, I was an undergraduate at the time. Mm. So that really informed me, and because I had the chance to go to this conference in Aotearoa and present on Hawaiian uh, sovereignty issues, I'd written my senior thesis on Hawaiian women's activism and the nationalist struggle. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to go back there, and I was interested, my original project was actually to look at other Pacific peoples living on Maori land and how they thought about Maori sovereignty and compare it to this issue of other native people in California and how they dealt with California native nation sovereignty. Mm. But when I got there, and I did get the Fulbright, I mean, I applied, but here's the other thing, because of the hemispheric difference in the calendar of when the university mm. started, mm. when I found out I got the fellowship, which is really competitive, it's this prestigious thing yeah, and it is all very that, prestigious, yes. I had to wait like over a year. Ah. So then I had to do the job. The yucky job, but I had the light at the end of the tunnel. What was the yucky job? Being a telephone operator oh, this for that was the catalog yucky job. company, right, which so I did for I did for almost two years. All right, so you arrive at the land of the long white cloud. <laughs> which university were you attached to? Auckland University. Auckland University. You it's know, a boring campus compared to Berkeley. Come on, be serious. Well, tell us. Nobody, nobody, nobody what, listens to no, this. No, no. I'll tell you why it wasn't boring in comparison <laughs> right. to Berkeley, and it's because when I got there. 
I was hosted by Rebecca Evans mm. for a few months until mm. I got my own place. It was at the forefront of Maori sovereignty in the mm. 80s and the black women's movement there. First, first weekend I arrived, she took me to protest at Waitangi mm. in February. This is mm. February 1994. And... Eventually, you know, I found my own place. She helped me get set up because she knew Hawaiian comrades from the days of the nuclear free and independent Pacific. Mm. And so she was really, you know, really helped me out. And I had met her in the trip after my conference. So she she had mm. already extended an invite. It was an exciting time. Well, I'll tell you why. It was a very, because that's when they actually sharpened their teeth and... Uh well, I was at the first meeting at mm. Auckland University that was the founding meeting of mm. an activist group called Takawa Maro. Yeah. Co-founded by Tony and Moana Sinclair, mm. uh, Cheryl Smith, yeah. Tiana Tuiono, Widamu mm. Emery, and basically they mm. had gotten word, a leak from the Beehive, from the national uh, capital, that the, the government was coming down with a unilateral fiscal settlement on all Treaty of Waitangi claims. Mm. And they wouldn't admit it. The mm. government wouldn't admit it at that point. And so Takawamata was founded, mm. and I clicked in. Because one of the – it was Moana or Tony said something about Hawaiian uh, Hawaiians fighting. Mm. And I said, oh, i got to go introduce myself. But I was at that meeting, mm. and I basically was taken in by the activist crew of Takawamato, and I went around for 11 months mm. to meeting after meeting, hui after hui around the motu, around the, the North Island, where they were basically sounding the alarm That's bells right. yep. from hapu to hapu, from marae to marae, about mm. what the government was doing. The government didn't acknowledge it. That was in June. Mm. The government, and I had already been there since February, the government didn't acknowledge it until right around Christmas of 1994. Mm. And I somehow got an extension on the Fulbright for another six months in addition oh, to my well, year. Well, you hadn't done your work. That's why you got the extension. Come on. Well, my, my project, my project changed. It was basically, yeah, you know, yeah, indigenous yeah. activism to yeah, stop I, I unilateral been, fiscal settlement. It so it was an to, incredible yeah, time. Yeah, well, it was up to me. I would have deported you, but that's a different <laughs> matter. <laughs> well, it's tricky because you're not supposed to do these things when you're on federal Exactly. That's what, I'm saying. that's what I'm saying. But you should have been yeah. deported. But I stayed until May You're lucky the computer age wasn't really functioning there wasn't social media because there'd be pictures of you everywhere well there would be because i went to the marches as <laughs> that's well right. the, the, be, the occupation at Fanganui river yeah, that's, that's the difference these days you know you can't breathe and they know what you're doing i mean vivian will tell you that you know well there's cameras everywhere yeah it's different you can't even make well, out with anybody in an elevator these have we got days any cameras in the studio vivian i don't think Probably, yeah, but we wouldn't have installed them, would we? No. If you get deported after this, don't worry. <laughs> well, hasn't Australia banned BDS activists from coming in the country? I'm, oh, I'm right. involved yeah. in uh, boycott, yeah. divestment, sanctions yeah, activism right. quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, yeah, and we've banned anybody who says anything wrong, so oh. you'll be fine. Oh, great. Never, you, I wouldn't you know anything about that coming from the U.S. No, no, no. You'll thank us for actually not having to come back to Australia in the future. Now, um... <laughs> So what happens after you leave the land of the long white cloud? In the meantime, I had been to two conferences here. I had yeah. also been to ANU, yeah. and I actually almost went to ANU to do my mm -hmm. DPhil in Pacific yeah. History, but kind of did a 180 and decided to go back to California. And in the meantime, I had applied for a PhD program there called History of Consciousness mm -hmm. at University of California, Santa Cruz, which is a critical theory program. Mm -hmm. And I assume you got your doctorate? I did. And what was the uh, thesis on? The thesis was on the use of blood quantum policy by the U.S. federal government to try and undermine how we define our peoplehood as Kanaka Maoli. So is, is blood quantum about the, uh, the amount of blood you have? Is it kind of a DNA? It's not about DNA. This is sort of before the, the real kind of push around DNA yeah. and ancestry. Yeah. And it's not actually about the blood you have, right, because I could go give a pint of blood if someone needs it, they're not mm. measuring the amount. It's no, blood, no, no. blood becomes a metaphor no. for ancestry. That's but it right. becomes a yeah, technology right. of race yeah, to yeah, dispossess right. Hawaiians. The good of old land. days, you know, you're a quadroon exactly. or a exactly. half caste. But, that, and, but yeah. we still have that. The federal government still, right now in 2019, defines Native Hawaiian with a 50% blood quantum rule. So well, if you haven't got a 50% blood quantum rule, you don't get the. You know, you're not recognized as a Hawaiian. Oh, there's nothing well. to quote get uh, it's not like there's some big package at the end of it well, if you have it there were a lot of struggles here Vivian weren't there about that it's, it, I mean somebody who's Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander it's, you have to be recognised by your community there's no blood quantum crap here at all no that would be um, yeah I don't that's yeah. incredible this is what, what many people call statistical extermination 
right? This is no, this no. Is it's just just unheard of here. It's unheard of. If you're if you're fifty percent, you know, I not mean, one quarter, not yeah. one eighth, fifty percent. Well, but we don't do it that way in Hawaiian Hawaiian culture. We no. are bilateral. Yeah. We get our Hawaiianness through the maternal and or paternal lines. It can mm. be either or both. Mm. Mm. And we're one big mob, as you would say here. We don't have subgroups. We mm. don't have tribal groups or clans. We're one people. We're is, all related. Is this just for Hawaiians or all Native Americans? It's just for Hawaiians. Why, Nat- why just for Hawaiians? Native nations that are federally recognized, tribal nations in the lower 48 states, mm. they uh, determine their own criteria for membership as right. federally recognized Native governing entities. So there's variation because amongst of the them. Tre- what, because of the treaty? So there was no treaty in Hawaii, was there? The blood quantum for Native nations doesn't have anything to do with treaties. It has to do with the federal government at least conceding that tribes should be able to determine their own body of membership. So, for example, the Navajo Nation defines members, citizens. Not, I shouldn't say members, citizens of the Navajo Nation. You have to have a one-quarter blood, blood. But that's the Navajo Nation government deciding mm. that. Mm. Cherokee Nation, it's lineal descent. Right. Some tribes, like Mississippi Choctaw, it's 50%, but the tribes decide for their own membership. That doesn't mean, though, that you don't have other ways of belonging. So, as I understand it, say Navajo are matrilineal and do their clans through maternal line. So somebody might not meet the one-quarter blood quantum for citizenship, but they may definitely be considered Navajo through their, through their lineage so and why kin has groups. The, so why is the federal government not given the same uh, respect to Hawaiians? Well, is, is it a colonial thing? Is it, is it because you never signed a treaty with the, the federal government? Uh, well, again, for Native nations, it doesn't have anything to do with treaties. Right. Um, although there are treaties, but mm. the blood quantum part doesn't come out of that. Mm. I mean, some some treaties had blood quantum, but, but, but that well, the treaty gives the treaty gives that tribal group the uh, ability to create their own laws. No, not necessarily. It's not the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. Right. So treaties, the treaties there are like what the government's trying to do here. Right. Even though they say it's indigenous people trying right. to do it, those are treaties so of session. Those are treaties of session right. that coerce native right. groups could into you, giving you, up land. Right, I'm going to answer your question yeah, though yeah, yeah. about what makes the Hawaiian case different. Yeah, yeah. We did have treaties with the U.S. government. Mm. The difference is we're with Native America, not with regard to blood quantum, but with regard to our sovereignty question, is that Hawaiians had established a monarchy by 1810, and that monarchy was understood and recognized as an independent nation state under international law until the U.S.-backed overthrow in 1893. The kingdom from 1843 to 1893 had five treaties with the federal government, but they were not treaties of session like those imposed on tribes. Mm-hmm. They didn't coerce or force or compel Kanaka Maoli or Hawaiians or the government to give up anything. They were treaties of friendship, commerce, and navigation. So you recognize our postage stamps, we'll recognize yours. You recognize our money orders, we'll recognize yours. You can come into our waters. The most one of them ever did was give the U.S. favored nation trading status around sugar tariffs and allow U.S. Uh, voyaging vessels to use the port use rights of the port of Pearl Harbor, but didn't cede anything. So why does the federal government still have a 50% rule over Native Hawaiians? Is that Hawaiians are still considered trustees of the 50th state of Hawaii and the federal government because we don't have a federally recognized Native nation Mm -hmm. like federally recognized Native nations in the lower 48 states. However, and I want to make this super clear, I'm not advocating for that because that would be lesser than our actual sovereignty claim under international law because a native nation under U.S. domestic policy is a reduced domestic dependent sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So they can actually make laws regarding native Hawaiians. They can and do. I mean, the federal government will do what it wants. This is unbridled power. And mm. even with federally recognized mm. Native nations, mm. they have limited self-determination under U.S. Mm. domestic policy. Mm. And the federal government still makes laws to undercut that sovereignty regularly. Mm. Regularly. Because yeah. it asserts federal power mm. as unilateral and absolute. Mm. So what's, what's resistance like in Hawaii? We were just talking about this beforehand, weren't we, Vivian? Um, there is some incredible mobilization going on all over uh, the major islands right now in the Hawaiian Islands. What I want to highlight is the uh, blockade at Mauna Kea, which has been going on since July 13th. These are grassroots Kanaka Maoli and allies, non-native allies, 
blocking Mauna Kea Access Road to stop trucks from ascending the summit to build a 30-meter telescope at the tune of $1.4 billion. And that is a sacred summit. It's called Mauna Kea because the top of the mountain hits Wakea, Sky Father. It's that high. And from from seafloor to summit, it's the tallest mountain in the Mm -hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And that's also the land of Poliahu, which is our snow deity, and she resides there. So you have people really throwing down for that struggle. There was a blockade in 2015 that successfully stopped and halted construction, and it went back to a contested case hearing. But uh, in 2018 of October, the Hawaii Supreme Court gave the green light for the permit. And in July 2019, the governor of Hawaii, and this is the fraudulent 50th state of Hawaii, right. not the independent state of no, Hawaii, no. Yeah. right, gave, gave the green light and people uh, uh, basically created a uh, space there, a blockade at what's called the Pu'uhonua o Pu'uhuluhulu. Mm. And it's incredible because what they're doing is they're holding, they're holding uh, an encampment. There have been thousands of people that have visited from native nations all over the world and allies. And they have visitors coming all the time. The governors uh, threaten the National Guard and to bring in the military several times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, basically, so every time power. he threatens, every yeah. time he threatens that, yeah, yeah. more people flock to the site well, to keep just, that at bay. Just like it's happening in Victoria currently. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've been brought up to date. Viv was brought up to date with the uh, struggle regarding oh, this. Oh, a little bit. We haven't had bit, that much yeah. time to talk, but it's very similar. No, it's very Sacred similar. Sacred trees. Very similar. Very Absolutely. similar. Yes. Was it one and a half years now people have been camping there? Yeah. yeah. The same, very similar struggle. And run by the women, as you were saying. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. I have been trying to follow that as much as possible mm. and also learning about the um, constant need for anti-mining activism yeah. throughout the country. Yeah. Well, maybe after this, maybe Vivian could... Uh, Chat to you. You never know. You get a lift up there and have a look. Wow, that'd be wild. Yeah. What do you reckon, Viv? I don't know. We got IMARC next week. I was telling yeah. about IMARC because yeah. you here another week, aren't you? Uh, just a few more days. Few yeah, yeah. Well, till uh, early well, till early well, next week. Well, yeah. Maybe if you got free time, it, stall's not far. It's about two hours, isn't it? Is that right? Okay, it's not far. You could even hire a car and go up there. When you said, I thought you were going to say hitchhike. No, 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 no. no. You've been to Berkeley. I heard hard H. No, 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 no. It's interesting. It is interesting how how all these uh, struggles are similar. Very similar. Now, I'm interested well, that's because settler colonial violence yeah. is similar. Exactly, yeah. We use big guns yeah. and kill people. It's, it's good. Now, getting back... Well, I'm interested. Land. I'm interested in how you uh, are. You are you the Tolstoy of, of uh, indigenous anarchism? Are you? Why would you say that? I'm curious where that question's coming well, from. Well, you know, Tolstoy had a religious bent. Now you've got a spiritual bent. Listening to you before talk about your background and your culture and your and, and your beliefs when you were answering the previous question. Um. How, can how does that fit in with no gods, no masters? Well, I'm not, I'm not that crude. You know, I, I greatly believe that <laughs> individuals have the right to have any god they like. It's the, it's the hierarchy in between individual and their god which shits me off. That, that's my position, all right? Right. I've got friends who are Christian anarchists and they don't believe in the hierarchy, like a bit like Tolstoy. But as an indigenous person, a lot of indigenous people obviously have uh, anarchistic beliefs because traditionally a lot of them are organized along anarchistic principles so how do you how do you um not overcome that how do you the juxtaposition how do you resolve that internally right so how does that jive or get reconciled yeah yeah it's something i've thought about a lot and i'm starting to write about it actually Uh um part of how i think about an anarchist orientation or anarchist sensibility is what people in anarchist circles that I'm familiar with call the difference between anarchy with a, an uppercase A mm-hmm. or a lowercase A anarchism. So I'm not interested in doctrinaire rigidity or dogma. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a sensibility about challenging unjustifiable authority. And I think about this in relation to Noam Chomsky's definition of anarchism, where he said it's just merely a tendency. Anarchism is a tendency to question power and that power itself is not self-evident or self-authorizing. The onus to justify power is on the person or entity exercising it. And if they can't justify it, it's probably that because they're abusing it 
and they don't have a good enough reason mm-hmm. to assert it. And then it needs to therefore be replaced with something else. Mm. So if we think about that rather than a doctrinaire notion of no gods, no master, so to speak, I mean, I think about European anarchism coming out of the Enlightenment and thinking about um, people challenging monotheistic cultures where the church and the state for so long was one entity, right? And so to me, I'm interested in indigenous critiques of anarchism that denounce abidance to this kind of notion of the spiritual because to eradicate that, say, in the Hawaiian context or other indigenous contexts, mm. I do see it as a genocidal move mm. because we we are distinct. It's not about, for me, erasing difference in some global humanity, even though we need to understand how we're all actually connected to each other mm. and to every element in the natural world, seen and unseen. Yeah. So for me, I also think about that. People would say, it's funny that you zoned in on the spirituality a lot of people, the first place they go, and then that's usually the second, is how do you drive nationalism with an anarchist sensibility? Mm. I say, well, anarch- for indigenous peoples, we could never presuppose that statehood follows nationalism, that mm. nation, native nations or mm. first nations. Yeah. There's the juridical model of how the government might see it. But when we say nation as people, that doesn't assume or presume that's right. Right. A, a nation, yeah. a, a governing model that's in, in Western terms. Mm. Right. There's governance, there's polities, there's territoriality, but it's very different. It's a different ontology. Well, it is. Yeah. Look, when I define anarchism, I, I mean, we have the same issues here for decades. And I say you go back to the original definition, anarchos without rulers, not without rules. What creates rulers? Inequalities in power and wealth. So the, the anarchist struggle is a struggle against inequality and power and wealth, it's very simple. But the other thing we had to deal with, which Europeans don't have to deal with here in Australia, Australian anarchists, is how do you reconcile with indigenous communities? Because there's over 220 communities around Australia. And my late wife, Ellen Jose, um, she was indigenous. Uh, she was a Child Strait Islander. And the way we reconciled it as a, as a group and as a movement was what we took the black flag of anarchy and place the dominant colours of the Torres Strait Islander flag and the Aboriginal flag stripes down on the black flag of anarchy. So you've got a black flag of anarchy, and it's got uh, red and yellow and green and uh, blue stripes on mm. it, because that incorporates, we, ex- we, we acknowledge the prior ownership of the land by people who'd been here for 60, 70, 80,000 years, as an anarchist movement, we were able to actually acknowledge that. Because otherwise, as you said, it becomes very Europocentric. And, uh, you know, it's as if, it's the same with nationalism. I mean, do you know much about Korean anarchism? No, I don't. Well, you should look into it. There was a gentleman came here, uh, I was up in Korea, my late wife and I went to Korea a number of times, South Korea. He was a resistance haki rack. He was like he was a professor. Mm-hmm. I think you were a professor. Yes. Yeah. He was a professor of uh, philosophy. At, uh, but he was also a terrorist in the 20s. He was involved in uh, actions against the Japanese invaders and is a very re- well-respected figure there. Mm-hmm. And what they did in Korea is they actually melded anarchism with nationalism. Mm-hmm. Quite interesting. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of work, and if you look him up, Haki Raki is very interesting. So they are things that, as a movement, we need we need to address. And unfortunately, right. as you said, we're uh, dragged down by dogma. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who just think, you know, if you do A, B, C, D, E, you get F, and it doesn't work that way. That's right. Yeah. A set of rigid rules instead instead mm. of a set of principles. Yeah. Principles. Mutual aid. Yeah. Horizontalism. Yeah. So when did this professorship happen? Somebody told me you were a professor when I wandered into the studio. They said, oh, we looked up her name. That was Rachel downstairs. She said, oh, she's a professor of something. So well, well, you're a professor, are you? I am. A professor in- of what? Professor of American Studies and Anthropology at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and I'm in my 20th year teaching there. Teaching? Mm. You teach little people. (laughs) (laughs) And you supervise PhDs too, do you? I don't. Well, as an external committee member for individuals, I don't actually work with PhD students at my own university because the two departments that I'm in are for undergraduates for the four-year bachelors. Yeah. But um, I actually teach on, I have two anarchist studies classes that I teach there, mm. and I teach I teach in anarchist studies, settler colonial studies, critical mm. indigenous studies, and critical race studies. And, and people can actually get degrees by going to your lectures. 
They do. That's extraordinary. Do. We don't have they that do. here, do we? No, no. I, I have a class. I have a class called Anarchy in America, and the subtitle used to be From Haymarket to Occupy Wall Street, and then I had to ch- switch it up. Now it's From Haymarket to Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and to look at organizing modalities, even yeah. if they don't self-identify as anarchists, that resonate. Right. Yeah. And then a new seminar for seniors called Anarchist Anthropology and Militant Ethnography. Uh, excuse me, I'm a bit lost here. I'm a, sim- <laughs> I'm a simple person. What does that mean in plain English? Well, two things, at <laughs> least, at least. I'll start with two things. Anthropologists that study radical social movements, Mm. on the one hand, but also anarchists that study politics and themselves have an anarchist approach to research methods. Mm. And so when you think of like ethnographic research, which is what anthropologists focus on, Mm. it's the participant observation model. This is to be more participant than observer, I guess is how you'd say it in in terms of the proportionality. You don't click, you walk. (laughs) (laughs) It's not clicked activism. It's about putting those feet on the street. But I really have tried to figure out a way through my research and writing and teaching to bring Mm. together indigenous Mm. resurgence politics with anarchist politics. And part Mm. of that is also critiquing anarchist modalities that reproduce settler colonial practices and logics in the U.S., right? right? And so that's one of the things I'm interested in. And I do want to make a plug if I can. I I co-produce an anarchist radio show. uh, Excuse me. Excuse me. Could could you say that again? You co-produce a what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> an anarchist politics radio show oh, called right. Anarchy on Air. Anarchy we on are Air. produced in the studios of WESU. And if you'd go to a search engine and put in Anarchy on Air, do plug in those search engine the into the search engine WSU call letters. Otherwise, you're going to get a heavy metal show out of Perth. <laughs> okay, all our past shows are online. I used to also do another you show reali- with re- a group of you students. You realize, you realize, some people wouldn't know the difference between ah, the heavy metal show and your program. Trump. <laughs> Trump wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. We had a previous show. We used to call it Horizontal Power Hour, and oh, that's oh, our, our that audio was... archive for there. So audio, if you search for yeah, Horizontal think... Power Hour and Anarchy on Air, you'll get two different audio archives. All right. But I also produced solo. I do that collaboratively with a group of students, mm. and they're incredible. And mm. we do we rotate responsibilities, right, skill right. set sharing, yeah. and all. We work cooperatively. Mm. I did produce an indigenous politics show alone mm-hmm. as sole producer and host for mm-hmm. seven years, and that mm-hmm. was called Indigenous Politics from Native New England and Beyond. So, what, so how long have you been doing the radio program for? A one or another or both, because there was quite a yeah. bit of overlap for a while since 2007. And are the, are the, is it podcast? It is archived online, but these actually all go have gone out, and the Anarchy on Air one is still on the air. It goes out on the radio airwaves, and then right. we so it's produced for the airwaves, and then we archive it mm. as an audio file, and then people refer to it as a podcast. Mm. But it wasn't produced as a podcast. Right. And does this go through the university a radio station, or is it a community radio station? It's a funny thing. We're a hybrid beast. Uh, mm. WESU is an incredible station in that only part, part less than half of its funding is through the university. Mm. And the rest is all listener-sponsored. Mm-hmm. So by criteria in the U.S., we're considered an independent community radio station. We're also part of the Pacifica affiliate right. uh, affiliation, uh, the Pacifica radio network. Mm. And so we do have Wesleyan has some funding in there, but not dominant enough. And actually, the majority of our DJs and producers are non-Wesleyan students. They're right. non, they're community members that don't have any affiliation, right. about 60% of them. Now, I don't, I don't want to appear rude, because as I said, this is a conversation. I like to be nice during Oh, no, Australia. when somebody says, I don't want to be rude, but I'm, you know what's yeah. happening is they're just yeah. about to be. Do you think there's much interest in anarchism among indigenous circles in America? Or are you just seen as just some odd bot out there? I do think there's interest. I think that what what I'm I'm actually looking at that question because I think non-indigenous anarchists have like romantic fantasies about indigenous oh, peoples, yeah. right? So there's the specter of like the Indian kind of lurking historically, but also if we think about how like the the Zapatista struggle influenced and revived anarchism throughout. North America, I think that there is a lot of interaction. Mm. But again, I think that part of the apprehension, if you will, is because there's a lot of anarchist circles that don't want to deal with the settler colonial piece. So, for example, one of the things that I write about and I'm, I'm working on right now, one of my many projects is to really challenge the discourse of reclaiming the commons that goes on in, in anarchist and other radical leftist circles that really 
it's like reclaim. You can only reclaim something that's already yours. So if you're saying reclaim the commons and you're talking about native land that was expropriated by by colonizers, mm. it's not reclaiming anything. It's claiming it. Well, it's it's like I said before. It's the issue that we have. We're basically settler colonial outposts. They come from a European tradition. They don't actually have to deal with that issue right. unless they're in far north Europe where they've got to, you know, deal with the Sami and other, you know, the Inuit. They don't have to deal with that issue. They right. say, we have to. We have to because we are, we are a product. We are a product of colonisation irrespective of what we do. And as anarchists, we need to be able to look at it, analyse it, absorb it and come up with some type of uh, practical solution that actually otherwise we're just a, uh, in, in a bubble. Right. We're not interacting. That's right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So, Viv. Full stop. Viv. Yes. Viv. Viv. I was going to ask you something. Yep. I want to thank you. No, I want to thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, and, um, yeah. Well, we still I got, want to continue it. Huh? Well, I do. Mm-hmm. Well, we've still got time. We've still got plenty of time. Do oh, we? that's right. Of course. All of right. course. You haven't um, embarrassed me enough yet. I haven't embarrassed you. I've actually, I've actually got Let's you to go think. Let's go talk about your childhood for all to no. listen to. I didn't embarrass you. What I've done is I've actually made you into a rounded personality, not just an academic. All right, we, academics are two and six a dozen. It's true. Rounded Thank personalities you. aren't. I mean, this is it's a conversation. People Thank say it you. isn't. Now. At this stage of the interview, I usually let people plug things, but you've plugged them already. So <laughs> what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you what I usually ask people. You've got any plans for the future? Oh, my. These big, big, big questions. Well, you get an hour. Now, where else do you get an hour about music and commute ads and stuff? Right. Mm, that's what I love about live radio, you know. You get the guests thinking and you've got to fill in time. Uh, Vivi, maybe, la, we, la, la, maybe, la, we la, maybe we could talk about our Tats Lotto numbers or something, you know. No, I <laughs> no. do, I'll tell you one plan I've got. Yeah. I've got a lot of plans. I'm a music fiend. Uh, and I, I want to do music journalism. I do music DJing. St- I did music DJing stuff excuse that I want to return to. Me. Can you go back to that music? You're interested in music? Yeah, I'm a music fiend. I see a lot of live shows. Are you, uh, and I love that. Are you, I a, love are you the a consumer? Australian are you a consumer? A music consumer or a producer? I'm not a producer. You just consume. I'm a pleasure beast. A pleasure, a pleasure beast. Oh. No, no, I like live music, but I'm interested in music journalism. I do. I have done music DJ, and I want to do more in music and write about the politics of post-punk music, right. including um, some of the cool stuff that came out of here back in the day. Um, and I don't mean punk music. I mean post-punk. post-punk. Yep, yep. But um, I do have this, this fantasy of in the creative zone outside of that, which I'll say, um, I have this, I want to learn, I want to figure out how to write a play. Mm, it's easy. Do it. I've that, done it. That would be a convert. Nobody better poach this who's listening to this. No. I'm, I've got dibs. No, don't, don't tell them. Don't tell them. They will poach it. This, this, this is a podcast. It's, it's there okay, forever. Okay, never mind. Don't tell them. Don't tell well, them. But, but look, I've written a play. I've all right. Tell me. It's tell easy. Me. Do your research. Yeah. And then just... Shut yourself up and do it. Just do it. Just do it. Because then you can, once you've got a, a basis, you can actually play with it later on. Play on play. Just, just turn out the draft and then polish it up. Just do it. Do it. Do All right, it. I won't Don't think about it. Is. I mean, I spent years thinking about it. Yeah. And I've, I've spent, spent, I've spent about eight years exactly. thinking about it. Just it's in it. here. Yeah, just do it. Just do it. All right. So you want to be a music journalist. You want to write a play. What else? That's not enough. That's not enough. No. I mean, you've got, you got at least another 40 years on the planet. I hope so. If it doesn't disintegrate. From your mouth to the God's ears. <laughs> yeah. hmm. I've got lots of books to write, and that's what I'm really excited about now, and that's what I've been well, talking about in my lectures. Well, can you give us some titles? Can you give us some titles? I mean, nobody's going to... In your esoteric area, nobody's going to steal the ideas on this program. Oh. <laughs> for a play, they will, but not for a book, because that okay. actually entails work. Okay. Well, I'm working on two book projects right now. Mm. I mean, I have... If I could mention my past titles. Of course. Since you said it's time to do a little plugging. Yeah. My first book was titled Hawaiian Blood, mm-hmm. which is based on the doctoral thesis, but majorly rewritten, called Hawaiian Blood, Colonialism and the Politics of Sovereignty and Indigeneity. And then I have a book that just came out last year, which is a follow-up monograph called Paradoxes of Hawaiian Sovereignty, Land, 
sex and the colonial politics of state nationalism. Mm, no, and no, no, nobody's going to remember all this. What I need to know is, <laughs> can you tell them how the new book spell is on indigenous name. solidarity politics with Palestine. And all they need you to do is spell my spell, name. Spell your name. That's what we need to know because spell they can, my name, and they can, spell my name. and they can look it up. Okay. Well, let me give you the surname. K A U A N U I. Again, that's K A U A N is in Nancy. U-I, and then you can put in J-K before that, and it'll come up. Great. And anybody with that surname is a relation of mine. Is that but good or bad? <laughs> depends on who it is. <laughs> no, J-K Kawanui, J-K Haolani Kawanui. J.K. Kawanui. So we're out of time. I can't plug the rest of it. All right. Well, you can. No, you can plug it, plug it, plug it. But if people know, if people know, they can spell, look up. They can look up my profile because, at Wesleyan yeah, University. has yeah. got all the scoops. All yeah, the, yeah. Because all the what links. happens is people listen to something and they're not going to go and yeah. type out a long book. No, title. but I do want to mention that what I'm finishing yeah. up right now is a politics on a, a book of politics, BDS politics of indigenous solidarity with Palestine and how it's playing out from U.S.-based That's activism. Right. Okay. We're having a Palestinian film festival in Australia. Did you know that? I did not know that, yeah. but I do know about the Aboriginal Palestine Solidarity Conference yeah. that's coming yeah. up in November that yeah. Gary Foley is organizing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming into the studio. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, for Vivian, for stepping into a Kelly's Void. Mahalo. Uh, thanks. Mahalo Nui Loa. Thank you, thank you, both of you, so much for having me. It's great to be here. At this, this is a killer station. Yeah, 3CR. What it's, you say? It's Deadly. It's unique. It is, I'll say. 400 volunteers on air for 42 years. The most Legend. radical station in Australia, if not the universe, but I'm biased because I've been here for 40 years. Legend. Thank you very much for coming in and all the best to you in the future. I think with people like you in the world, we've got nothing to worry about. Oh, thanks. Aloha.
Coming home to you. 